They say banks are boring, credit unions are dull. We don't agree, we love them all. Except for the big banks and neos who take a market share, make consumers blue. Need a fresh perspective, new direction. Take back banking and make some connections. If you feel stuck, it's not your fault. Here's an idea, try thinking outside the vaults. Recently, my wife recommended that I leave the house and go to work at a coffee shop. This past year has really put me in a mode where I stick even closer to the house than normal, which is saying something since I work full-time from home. But I took her advice, packed up my laptop, and left. Hi, my name is Zach Garver, and you're listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast for community banks and credit unions who believe that excellent service is about having a heart that's bigger than your balance sheet. Back to my coffee shop escape. The freedom to step out of my house and spend a few uninterrupted hours with a cup of coffee that someone else brewed was a real delight. It also reminded me of the concept of a third place. For most people, the first two places are their home and workplace. Author Ray Oldenburg popularized this idea in the 90s with a book titled The Great Good Place. Starbucks, in turn, latched onto the idea and encoded it into their operating procedures. To create a safe, comfortable place where people can casually gather, rub elbows, and guzzle a latte or two. Starbucks didn't become a third place by having the best furniture, or even having the best coffee. They did it by connecting with consumers, building trust, and creating an experience that made customers feel special. Now let's pivot that to the world of banking. In today's industry, megabanks, fintech companies, and neobanks are all vying for consumer wallets, especially loans. In order for community financial institutions to stand a chance of competing with these disruptive forces, they need a plan of action. My guest today is Greg Schultz, a director of product management at Casasa, and we're talking about the lending strategies that you'll need for 2021. Market forces may be topsy-turvy, but there are clear ways that you can attract consumers, encourage them to borrow money, and build loyalty as their primary financial institution. So, grab your no-fat white mochaccino and settle in for a great conversation. Greg Schultz, thank you again for joining me on Thinking Outside the Vault. I'm really looking forward to this discussion about lending strategies for 2021. You know, 2020 was a really crazy year, kind of on every front. And so now things seem like they're stabilizing. And I think a lot of our institutions are looking at 2021 and trying to figure out what they are going to do to to grow. And lending is top of mind, really. So I'd, I'd love to hear you just kind of set the stage. Tell me about what you're seeing in, in the world of lending, you know, and you can back that up into 2020 and kind of bring us up to where we are today. Yeah. Um, look, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be a fun conversation because um, the world shifted. Uh, 2020 could be looked at from um, two completely different perspectives. One, on some sides of the institution, they boomed. So if you did small business lending and you were in the PPP space, you were rocking. If you did mm-hmm. mortgage and mortgage refinance, you were rocking. Um, if you were heavy on consumer lending, you were not doing so great. Um, but your deposits <laughs> increased 
And, and so like the, the income, like what you said a minute ago, because institutions are looking at, at lending in 2021 and seeing where they can go. There's a real, real reason why. For banks and credit unions, their balance sheet shifted. So deposits went up 16 to 18% for credit unions and banks, um, respectively, on average. And loan to deposit ratios dropped to a record lows in recent history from, from 80s to down to 75 and 63%, uh, give or take, from FDIC and NCUA data. So, like, does that, let, me, let me stop you for a question, for a quick moment on the loan to deposit ratios. Where do, where do bank and credit union leaders start getting nervous? Like, when do they start sweating that loan to deposit ratio? I would say now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would say a little while ago, a couple of stages back. Um, You don't want to be 100% loan to deposit. We all know that. Uh, But what's happened with this influx in deposits um, and the the glut in lending is there's been a balance sheet shift. And it happened simultaneously with a lot of debt being refinanced at lower rates. Mm. So now you've got massive amounts of you've got tons of capital that you're sitting on, tons of cash that people brought in from deposits from from record years, and then you've got the lowest rates on the loans you've had in a long time, um, and so your margins are completely compressed. And if you're buoyed by mortgages last year and PPP, you're probably looking at this year going. Okay, well, what's this year going to bring? Yeah, you you mentioned something about, uh, and I'm you know reveal my own ignorance here for our listeners, but I, I feel like the world of banking is something like if you're not a perpetual student, you, you're probably not trying very hard. <laughs> uh, so I just assumed that mortgages were tied to the Fed target. Uh, and, and you were making it clear to me that it's way more tied with the 10 year T note. So, and, and, and that has really been shifting recently. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of institutions will base simple if they're going to hold or if they're going to sell, but a lot of it's driven off of the 10 year T note because it's, it's a yield ratio. Um, and it, in the, from, and look, it's, it is March 4th today. Um, and it's gone from 9.3 to 1.55. It's a um, big jump. It's a big jump. And in the same time, your, your 30 year conforming mortgage jumped from, you know, under 2%, 3%, or I'm sorry, under 3%, you know, looking at the 2.8s, 2.9s to 3.2. Um, and so we know what's going to happen as those rates go up is refis are going to drop and refis are what, what won the day in 2020 in the mortgage space. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, that was a double-edged sword. You, if you were selling them, great. You were taking in tons of cash and the, and the fees. If you were holding them, you're taking them in at really low rates. Um, so it's a, it's a double-edged sword on how um, this gets driven. Okay. And you also mentioned in, in the prep for this call a little bit about new home sales, right? And those still seem to be strong, but but there's an inventory issue. And I can even attest to that, I mean, anecdotally from where we live. It's like a house doesn't, no house really seems to stay on the market very long. Yeah. So that was the other piece. Um, you know, when you look at uh, home purchases in the mortgage space and, and people far smarter than I, I read their articles. So uh, this came out, you know, last year they were projecting it, but the Mortgage Bankers Association said, look, new home purchases are going to stay high through 2021. We know that. And I, I believe it to be true. Um, the problem you're really going to have is uh, inventory. And um, that's where a lot of this uh, it, it, on the new purchases is going to be 
held up. There's not enough homes in, in, in major markets for that engine to keep turning. And as, yeah. as the rates come up, refis go down. Now you're stuck in between, well, there's not enough supply to power the market. Yeah, that makes sense. Now we could, we could talk about margin compression. Honestly, I've heard a lot about margin compression and, and I'm not a, I'm not in charge of a balance sheet. So it's easy for me to be dismissive of that. So if we need to talk about margin compression, we totally can. But I will say the thing that interests me more is some of the things that are happening in, in fintech lending. And it seems like there's no end to the desire on the part of fin of you know like square right and and they're now offering banking services and, and other you know lenders they they are hungry to get the, the borrowers they're pursuing the borrowers that you know traditionally going to these community financial institutions um and that seemed to seems to me like a much bigger threat than margin compression because that the, some level of margin compression it's going to be there like you learn how to deal with it but but fintechs that's like a totally new it's hard to predict how that's going to affect uh, mm -hmm. community financial institutions what do you what, what's your perspective on that over the last fifteen years um, especially on the consumer side you can we could call it on the mortgage side too um, if you look at better mortgage and, and quicken. Um, call, call quick enough fintech, right? Um, mm -hmm. They dominate originations. They started small, but now 50%, uh, give or take, of consumer loans are originated by a fintech. Um, same thing in the mortgage space. They wow. dominate that, that capacity. Um, so it's really interesting to see, like, what are institutions doing to compete that you, you can partner with them? Um, you can give them balance sheet and give up the consumer or you can, um, compete with them, but like, where's the funding come from that? I was actually <laughs> looking at, um, there's a f interesting piece on funding, uh, rounds from fintechs, uh, last okay. year. I'm actually going to find it. I know you're uh, talking about in investment funding, right? Like, like, mm -hmm private equity and that sort of private equity and that type of thing coming in being a venture capitalist saying, okay, we're going to put money behind these guys. Right. And so, um, Chime raised 485 million toast raised 400 million Molo 345 million new bank, 300 million, um, Carnal 650 million. Like these are all, no, not all of them are competing on the lending side. Not all of them are directly competitors with financial institutions, but some of them are competing in some way. And this is where you really look at the bigger picture in fintech and the disintermediation of consumers. And now you and I have had this conversation about deposits, right? So you have before Venmo, before PayPal, before Cash App, before all these things, right? you'd, you'd give your friend cash, you'd cut him a check, right? I mean, that's how you handled money between friends. Absolutely. Um, and so all of your money lived in your deposit account with your primary financial institution, which we were just talking about. Um, with those, with all those other apps, well now, you know, you got $300 in Venmo, you got $100 over in PayPal, you got some cash over in Cash App, and then it sits there, it doesn't really mean, you can buy things with it, you can put it in your bank account, it doesn't really matter, mm -hmm. right? Because you've got it, you've got access to it. It's your liquidity, it doesn't really matter where it sits. Um, and we talk about this a lot on the deposit side, um, 
in terms of like primary relationships and getting the, cause look, if that money's not in your checking account, you're not putting that swipe on your institution's debit card, then they're not taking their change income. That's a big business. Let's be real. Right. Um, what nobody's talked about the same time and not with the same vigor is that same disremediation with lending and how, you know, you get mm. a loan from your card like, cause that's just what it's been. What's different about a loan? Loans are the same. It's about your rate. So if I get a loan from the car dealer and they put me over at, you know, us bank, cool. Cause the rate's good. I'm going to stay. If, right. you know, if I, if I go and get another car from a different dealership and they put me somewhere else and the rate's fine, I'm going to stay. Why do I need to move it? Um, as long as I can set up auto pay and move on with my life, no one cares. Um, cause there's nothing really special or different unless you just don't want to have the logins. And do you really want to go through the hassle of refinancing that over to someone else? <laughs> right. Do you have a relationship that you care about enough or convenience that you factor that you care about enough to not do that? Um, oh, and by the way, are they going to put an origination fee on you doing that? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. do you lose money in doing it? And so all these things are the factors that have really kept people like, yeah, I got the loan over there. It's fine. I can just pay it. No worries. Um, and I think, I think 2021 is going to be an interesting year where, where financial institutions need to hold their borrowers close. They need to hold their customers. Look, I'm down here in Austin and we just had that massive power outage and we lost, oh you gosh. know, freezing damage. We were not ready for that. Um, but you had, you had your family, you're going to stay warm and you're going to snuggle up and, and, and look, we're going to get through it. I think it's the same thing in banking right now where, um, our financial institutions, a lot of them are, are, not upside down, but they are not in the position they wanted to be on their, on their balance sheet. And they need to go make their borrowers feel love. They need to snuggle them a little bit. And how are you going to do that when your margins are already at the floor and everybody's watching expenses? You need to do this something is, different. This is such a great point. I've actually been trying to think about this a little bit. There's been a lot of conversation around the office about PFI, right? Primary financial institution. And I've noticed that there seems, and it, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to this. Like if you're if you're running an institution, you're looking at the numbers from a high level, and you're trying to to make that balance sheet work. And but but the flip side of that that I'm seeing is is really what you just pointed out, which is that there's a kind of it's almost like they forget that there's individual people on the other end of those accounts, right? And mm-hmm. and that it's that relationship that is what sustains it's, it's like that relationship is the molecule right of the, the bigger mass that is the, the, the balance sheet and if you don't aren't taking care of those individual relationships those individual consumers then then you start to see those big swings you know or, or disintermediation like you're saying with with deposits and then certainly loans man i feel like i cannot go to a website that sells things without seeing a, a little call to action for a firm. And it's like even small purchases, it's like 10 bucks. And it's mm-hmm. like, you can pay for this in four installments of two fifty. Right. I'm like, what, <laughs> what on earth? <laughs> I can't even believe that there's like, there's, there should be like a lower threshold for this. You're really like doing payments this small, but that's where some of that dinner, disintermediation on loans is coming from where, where, competitors are, are finding ways to insert themselves in the purchase process or in the consumer experience and capture their business. Yeah. And look, I, you, you nailed it. It's, it's so subtle 
when you look at it from the aggregate, when you look at it on the balance sheet side, you don't see the people. When you look at getting in loan volume and, you know, okay, I need to get more indirect or I need to go to, to non-prime near prime to get uh, better yields. I think all of these things you're thinking about an aggregate. Um, and if you don't boil down to the next level, you're going to end up in my, my perspective, a lot of can people can end up, a lot of institutions can end up and like a frog in a pot. Um, and yeah. you don't know you're boiling until it's too, too late. And you just kind of let it burn off and burn off and burn off. And, um, this attrition of loyalty, the stickiness, these consumer behaviors that are, are really important is happening so subtly. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, I just looking at my own banking relationships, I started kind of mentally mapping all the different institutions that I have connected to the different bank accounts, the different, you know, Venmo, PayPal, I've got a, you know, I've got kind of, I've got my side hustle, right? So I've got a PayPal for my a business PayPal for that. And then I've got my like personal PayPal. And there's just all these different ways that money it, it can be moved around. And even the, like I was trying to identify for myself, like who's my primary financial institution. And at the moment I couldn't really answer that because my financial life is so distributed across this range of, you know, range of players, which is interesting to think about. I wonder how that experience maps onto other people, either in my demographic or, or just across the board, right? And people are moving so much more of their financial life digitally. And so that is just a very different playing field than like, well, what banks are in my town? <laughs> right. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about a limited time opportunity to really step in and help your community. Last year, nearly 8 million Americans lost their employer-sponsored health insurance. And we'll be looking for a solution. You can help them find one. Fortunately, President Biden has reopened healthcare.gov through May 15th of 2021 so that more Americans can buy health insurance who need it. Many states that manage their own insurance exchanges are following suit. Casasa Care is a referral marketing program that allows community financial institutions, like yours, to offer value-added products such as health, vision, and dental insurance while barely lifting a finger to do it. This golden opportunity to help your community with healthcare coverage won't last forever, so you need to act fast. To learn more about Casasa Care, click on the link in the show notes. And now, back to our conversation with Greg Schultz. Okay, so we've been talking a little bit about the... Uh, the lending environment, the economic environment, uh, some of the challenges that our institutions, uh, financial institutions are facing today. Uh, I'd love to get start getting into some of our predictions for 2021. What you, as someone who's deeply embedded in this space, is what you're concerned about, what you see coming down the way, uh, you know, and then we can kind of wrap that up with, with you know, your, your practical strategies for how to deal with those predictions. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, what we, what I see coming, um, we'll start with mortgage. Look, mortgages are going to continue to boom, but it's not going to be like it was last year as rates rise. 
um, refinances will fall. And like we were saying, inventory is going to be hard on new purchases. Um, outside of mortgage, I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of more PPP relief in 2021. Um, that said, I do see uh, with you know, you know new vaccines coming out and um, areas opening back up, I see, a, and I think the market expects this overall, there's going to be a big upside in the end of the year. So the back half of the year, you can expect large um, gross and consumer activity. Mm. Think about the people that have, have paid a lot of attention to um, shutdowns or their, their areas have never opened up and, and been locked down. Vacations are going to take off. And so <laughs> institutions of demand in the system. <laughs> yeah. Um, I haven't checked it. Well, I'm curious. I want to go check what um, Carnival's trading at. Uh, <laughs> but like, there's, there's a lot of demand to move about. And I think we're going to see on the back half of the year, things like vacation loans are going to take off. Um, I, I would venture to say that you're going to see uh, credit card debt um, will start rebounding um, okay. uh, as you know people get back into routine of spending. Um, when but we I saw don't, that really take a big, like a, a lot of people spent their stimulus checks paying off things like credit card debt, which is, I mean, that's that's kind of hurt a lot of institutions that, that are in that space. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a double whammy. Um, if they... If they own the assets, if they're uh, on on those, then they're lost the interest income and the interchange income on, on the swipes, and so yeah. um, it could be a big hit when when those types of things take a dive. Um, so I think that'll come back, uh, but instant consumers um, are going to go where they can get things the easiest. I don't see a lot of. Um, in-person traditional need and need lending happening going forward, it's going to be more digital. Um, we've spent the last year being digital. And I think that kind of efficiency, that kind of connectivity is going to be really important if you're going to be able to do anything um, going forward. That totally makes sense. And I know there's been, we were actually, I'm not even quite remembering when we were really bringing this up as an issue, you know, internally, at the office, but, um, qualified borrowers, right? Like there's, that has been a little bit challenging, like unemployment spiking. So somebody who last month had a job and had a steady income and looked like a really good borrower, like they're not a qualified borrower anymore. Uh, so w what are your thoughts about that? Are, are there, do we just kind of have to do institutions just need to make the best of the qualified borrowers who are out there? Or is, are we going to like break open a whole new category of like, Oh, we didn't think these people were qualified, but turns out they are. So that's a really interesting question because, um, you have a lot of, um, opportunity for alternative crediting. Okay. At this Tell point. Me more about that. Um, there are outside of the traditional FICO score and, and those types of reports, there are some fintechs out there testing um, different credit parameters. So um, one I heard a while back, and I don't know if this is actually become to fruition was if you paid your cell phone bill regularly, mm -hmm. you were more likely to repay your loan. Um, didn't matter if you have a, you know, a 400 FICO, if you pay your cell phone bill regularly, you're going to, you're going to be able to pay on, which is 
Um, counterintuitive. So I think there, not to say that there's more low credit scores out there, but there's going to be a lot of competition on the upper echelon. Everybody's competing for the 700 and up, right? So they're harder to get. Um, they can demand more and their rates are going to be lower. Uh, so institutions that are willing to be more flexible on credit have a lot of opportunity. Those that are willing to partner with fintechs that offer um, products or pricing methodologies that help them capture some of that space um, will see a win. And you know how that win pans out, it'll win on origination. I don't know if it's going to win on the back end. Um, but it, those are the ones that I think are going to pick up a lot of traction in the year. Yeah, that makes sense. I've got a, I've got a question for you about uh, the experience, the, the borrower experience here. Because it strikes me that in an environment like what we're talking about, where everybody's competing for you know, the 700 and up, as you put it, right? Like the qualified borrowers are premium. Does that mean that institutions should be looking to create white glove experiences for those borrowers? Or is it, is it about creating really slick, convenient digital experiences and, and just make it fast? Um, so I think that's a really good question because on when I look at things, look, I'm a product guy. I'm always going to look at what problem are we solving? Mm -hmm. The problem I've never heard from anybody is I want to get into more debt faster. Let's go. <laughs> like, Unless you're the U S government. <laughs> right. There you go. Um, the, the, the problem that we're solving for borrowers is convenience. I don't want to spend a lot of time pooling documents. I don't want to spend a lot of time back and forth. I don't want to have to come into your branch and deal with this. You're yeah. solving convenience factors. So speed, I think, is a byproduct of convenience. Um, and convenience can actually mean a lot of things. It can mean you, you need less information, which would make your application faster. It could mean that um, you process it faster which would make your, like all of these things kind of lead back to speed, but they all stem from the problem, which is getting a loan is inconvenient. Make it easier. Yeah. Um, but I think the lending space in particular is focused a lot on the getting into the loan. Right. Mm -hmm. um, now with uh, marketplace owners, you can shop rates, you can do all this kind of fun stuff. And I think that's really, really important for borrowers and for the general health of consumers, um, being able to shop financial products the way you can anything in the, in the space. Um, but there's the whole after fact too. And, and this is where Casasa loans shines more than anything. And that Casasa loan is built to be more convenient after origination. So how do I understand my debt? How do I leverage my debt to my uh, advantage? How do I um, control it to something I, I want to be better at? And I think more institutions will want to focus on that second half. That's the, that's the hold your borrowers close piece that we were talking about earlier, right? right. Getting them in the door right. is great. Um, but is this a long-term relationship or is it a one night stand? Like you want it to be a long-term <laughs> relationship. You want it to be there with you. They want that private primary financial institution relationship that we were talking about earlier. And that doesn't come by getting them in the door fast and forgetting about them. It gets a, it's, it's nurturing and it's long-term. Well, and you, 
you know, we were, we were talking a little bit, of, uh, you know, in, in prep for this, this conversation. And, and you mentioned a story from one of our institutions where a member brought in a significant amount of debt. Tell me, I think that's relevant here, right? Cause you're talking <laughs> about like the, 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 yeah. what's um, the potential upside of a really good relationship with your borrower? And I think this story really gets at it. So this, they, I loved this story. We, we did a, a webinar with um, one of our clients up in Montana, um, Lincoln County. Um, and they told this great story. So they offer Casasa loans. And uh, if you don't know about Casasa, let's go check it out. But it's a different type of loan, not in terms of like different type weird credit, but it's, um, it's one that really hugs the consumer. It, it takes, puts the consumer in the driver's seat, put them first, and it differentiates the institution in a way that nothing else out there does. And so uh, they've been leading with this product. They've been performing phenomenally. And they actually had one borrower that just sums up what you and I have been talking about phenomenally. They got him into a Casas loan and said, hey, do you have any other debt you want to work this way? And the guy said, actually, you know what? Yeah, I do. And ended up moving over like a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt that he had spread across different oh institutions. Goodness. Yeah, it's amazing. And you think about how does it happen? Well, you know, again, I got a loan from Toyota over here, and then I went to Chevy and got you know my wife's car, and then um, I applied online for that SoFi thing and, and did that over there, and then I did this other thing over here. And right. so you, you just you don't think about it, and before long, you're spread all over the place, but. Think about bringing those relationships in. You know, we did um, we did some analysis on some of our transaction data here at Casasa and found that thirty percent or more of borrowers are paying out to another institution out of the checking account that they have at the institution. So they're paying mm-hmm. a loan somewhere else from your checking account. And the question I ask any institution is, why isn't that your loan? Right? Why weren't they bringing that in with you? I mean, this so this is interesting to me because it strikes me as kind of the others draw the draw the line here between these two things make the connection uh people when we talk about account uh switching right like oh you're gonna nobody likes changing banks right and in the same way like at no point do you think to yourself you know what my life would be so much easier if i just like brought in all these like various debts and consolidated them in here, unless you're like, unless you're actually in debt consolidation, but you need some kind of real incentive to do that, right? You're going to refinance all that debt at the same time, uh, or, or, or some, something like that, but you don't just wake up one day and think, Oh, I'm going to bring all my, my debt into this one place without a reason. Right. So that's interesting to hear that, like for him, the Casas alone was that reason. Yeah. I mean, like, if you give me a, a piece of cardboard that is what it is, or you give me a piece of pie and you say, do you want more pie? You want more cardboard? <laughs> I want more pie. Of course I want more pie. Um, I was, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of pie myself. Right. Okay. And you know, that's where institutions need to put their, their consumers front and center, ask what they want. Ask how you can help them. And if you can help them solve a problem, if you can help them with what they need, uh, and they do this. So I'm not saying our institutions don't do this. That that would be a, a, 
complete misconstrue. Like they do, they bend, they bend over backwards to help their their network, and they bend over backwards to help their their consumers by yeah. creating uh, you know Absolutely. unique products and all these things. But that's in the space that they know how to do. I can configure this product that I already have. I can reshape this table to fit your needs. I'm not giving you a completely different table. Um, and what we're saying is maybe the table needs to change. Maybe it should be a couch. Don't just cut it down so they can sit on it. <laughs> Give them the couch. That's that's great. And I think even more significant when you when you consider the the long term prediction here, right? And, and what I'm talking about is uh, what the Fed is saying about rates long term, and then you know their their public statements are that they're committed to low rates as long as it takes to get the economy you know back on its feet. Well, right. so that, what that means is that at no point is a rate change going to come in and like bail you out of whatever situation you're in, in terms of, of borrower growth or borrower acquisition. Like, right. I mean, as we were talking at the beginning of this about, you know, how the 10 year T note and the mortgage uh, rates are correlated. They're not, they're correlated. They're not causal relationships, but the, for the last 20 years, they have almost exactly mirrored each other on fluctuations. When the mortgage rates go up, the 10-year T-note goes up. When the 10-year T-note goes down, the mortgage rates go down. It's a, it's a measure of, of, of value in terms of the, the mortgages are packaged up and sold as securities, right? That's a, yep. it's a bond. Um, and you know, we have to pay attention. If one is moving, what do you expect the other one to do? Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that totally makes sense. So I, I think it's... You know, the Casasa loan, of course, isn't the only option. We obviously, you know, believe strongly in that and, and have seen a tremendous amount of evidence for why borrowers value it and, and are willing to engage with it, you know, at a level that is, you know, there's not a lot of precedent for. But, you know, the, the key thing here is that institutions need to think about that whole experience of, of what they're offering their borrowers because borrowers because that's what they can use to differentiate um and they're going to need that right in 2021 absolutely awesome well greg this has been a fascinating conversation i really appreciate you let me uh, pick your brain and and ask some of these even maybe silly <laughs> almost ignorant questions i think but I, I love i love learning from people who are experts in their space and just have uh, a lot of insight on this stuff and i think our listeners will really appreciate that too um so thank you so much for your time it's my pleasure For a long time now, community banks and credit unions have relied on measures such as direct deposit to determine if they've achieved primary financial institution status with an account holder. The trouble is, no consumer has an emotional connection to their direct deposit. If you want to keep your account holders close, without suffocating them, you need to look for every opportunity you can find to connect and add value to their financial lives. There's no miracle recipe you can follow to do this either. But every product, service, and touchpoint you use should reinforce how much you care about their well-being. The Casasa loan is just one way to send that message. 
There are other strategies you can and should use. But if you wait to make a move, you'll get left in the dust by your competition. Thanks again for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. Our theme song was written by Victoria Kerr. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leaving a review. This helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at casasa.com.